Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. Let's start with the Booker Prize long list. What kind of a list is it this time, Claire? Oh, it's very interesting. I mean, actually, it's it's quite refreshing. Because there's been a sense in a lot of these big prizes of, of the search for novelty has taken over, perhaps, from the search for quality at long list stage. And this is a sort of absolute, you say it's a blue chip list. Yeah, it's the kind much. of box office list you'd expect from yeah. Peter Florence, isn't it? Peter Florence, who's the, who's the um, director of the Hay Festival. You say this is a list put together with somebody with an eye to filling marquees. <laughs> <laughs> and the book trade has been absolutely delighted with it. because, And it's, a, you know, in a way, at this period in our history, when everything's so insecure, we're, fina- we're economically very rocky. To put out an absolutely rock solid book list, it's, it, there's something sort of rather timely about it. Yeah, so names on the tent. <laughs> so names on the tent. Well, we start with the biggest name of all, Margaret Atwood. You know, this is the novel that everybody's been waiting for, which is the follow up to The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid having become a global meme. What we do know, we don't know yet what it is going to be. We do know it's going to be Offred, still the Offred's further adventures. But the big clue is that they are using the same wimple, the very familiar um, nun's costume, but it's gone green. Ah. I.e. it's going to be environmental. Well, I mean, we could have guessed that because of the Oryx and Crake trilogy, which she's done between the two. And because of the urgency of the climate emergency. I mean, she's responding to her times again, isn't she? Yeah, and it's about time that these climate novels began to come through. Um, the other one is um, John Lanchester's The Wall, which is another classic dystopia of a society dealing with a walled island, which is probably... Britain, patrolled by soldiers who are taught to, to shoot the others. Mm, the others arriving the, in boats. In uh, boats, yeah. after the change. Mm. So, so I think this is, this is sort of putting the climate change on the fictional shelves for, prob- you know, in a way for the first time. I, I mean, I'll probably be shot down in flames by anybody <laughs> who has any, any um, expertise in fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> but for for uh, literary the, fiction, it's, it's actually only just beginning to happen. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are tons of novels you, you, could, you could cite uh, that have looked at these kind of issues, but it's a big novel from a big name in, in, in this kind of literary fiction space. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the other big names, we've got the new one from Deborah Levy. Um, the extraordinary thing about Deborah Levy is having written a flurry of novels sort of 20 years ago, she suddenly came back on tap and all her three second pressing novels well the two got onto the shortlist and here we are again another unpublished novel she's very clever because she writes short novels of immense sophistication (laughs) which are also very vivid they're sort of existentialist novels and they're also a bit postmodern Um, and so I was trying to work out what the trick is that she plays and I think it's partly that she makes people feel clever without exhausting them with a thousand pages. Mm, uh, This is this one is called The Man Who Saw Everything so another clever novel perhaps do you think is Salman Rushdie? Kishot Mm. yes well it's a it's a this is another of the three unpublished hitherto unpublished novels I think the idea of Salman Rushdie doing battle with um, Cervantes is Mm. I mean, I'm, I can't wait to read it. I'm going away on holiday with it because I'm interviewing him at the Sheldonian in Oxford as part of our, our Guardian Live programme um, at the end of August. Please, everybody should come. You know, I think that he's at his best when he's, he's not bothering himself with low-down common realism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm sure this will be him at his fabula, fabulist best. Yeah, and, uh, but set in modern-day America. Yes, this is a thing that's going on a lot now, is, is sort of classics brought into the current... Mm day. Uh, the other person who's done that is Jeanette Winterson with Frankenstein, which retells the story of 
Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But she reframes it as Rye Shelley, who's a transgender doctor who self-describes as a hybrid, who meets Victor Stein, who's a celebrated professor who sees transhuman possibilities in Rye's body. So it's exploring the possibilities of artificial intelligence and the implications of transsexuality and transhumanism, i.e. the monster, but absolutely reframed as a modern set of philosophical issues uh, into the mix of this 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 modern day monster <laughs> and so uh, what about some of the less familiar names on the list well we did bernadine everisto last week on the podcast her girl woman other is mm. an acclaimed favorite of mine mm. obviously by now i am very very interested in elif shafak's 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world which um elif is emerging she's really interesting she wrote originally in turkish and is turkish and then she switched to writing in english they sort of it took her a while to find her feet as a sort of serious um literary novelist and i think that this is probably the one that she's going to have arrived at it's set on the outskirts of istanbul and it's about a sex worker who's murdered and her body's been dumped in a rubbish bin and it's the 10 minutes and 38 seconds in which her brain is shutting Mm. down so it's all the her going back over her life another novel that is again very different but is in some sense it's the journey of someone's mind is Lucy Elman's Ducks Newburyport. Ah, oh, my goodness, what a mind. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy Elman was a, you know, a rock star novelist in the say the 90s and she's gone very quiet and here she is with a a single paragraph thousand word novel um, which interestingly is not published by her regular publisher Bloomsbury I think it's probably too hot to handle so Galley <laughs> Beggar Press run by our own Sam Jordison have picked it up now, they are very very smart at picking up unconsidered trifles aren't they uh, it'd be difficult to call this one a trifle though weighing <laughs> it at a thousand pages it's a what is it a tiramisu of grand proportions <laughs> <laughs> a layer cake <laughs> <laughs> or an eaten mess no not so much the eaten um yeah no i mean she she's 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 a sort of wayward genius lucy and and you have to go with her for the ride and it does absolutely sound as if this is worth going with her for the ride at the other extreme as a sort of slender novel is um, max porter's lanny which i absolutely love now max porter was an ex-bookseller who who suddenly came to notice with um, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, which is like a half poem, half novel about um, bereavement. Um, And then he's written this um, parable of a sort of folk England with this figure called Dead Papa Toothwort, who is the spirit of the land. So on one level, it's a a story of a disappearance of a child, but it's also the invocation of ancient England. Um, And... He is definitely onto something because this is about climate and the vengeance of nature and the sort of smallness of humanity against the possible vengeance of nature. And it's told in a kind of multiplicity of voices as well, isn't it? With the, the inhabitants of the village inhabiting the page. Yeah, it's a choral, a choral novel, but it's also typographically very interesting because um, Papa Toothwort's um, speech sort of snakes off the page in all sorts of directions. You've got snippets of speech which add up into... It's, this is what life is. Is mm, you know, kind of these, collective consciousness of the village. In some yeah, sense. little little things that happen. I've gotten my bus ticket, or mm. you know, or that was a horrible occasion, or mm. I'm hot. Mm. Even <laughs> <laughs> another novel that's formally challenging is Valeria Luizelli's Lost Children Archive. Yeah, you're a fan of. We've always done Valeria, haven't we? And I think we, I think we can now formally clap ourselves on the back for having been there <laughs> right yeah. away since she started publishing. Yeah, in, she's in, always been very in interesting. Translation. Yeah, very interesting. And this is the, her first book she's written in English, actually. Um, 
um, it's a, it's a very big, bold book, and it kind of again very intricately constructed as well. About it's about a subject that defines our age, arguably the subject of migration, particularly migration from Mexico to the U.S. Uh, it's also intensely aware of the difficulties of writing about people in these awkward, terrible situations and not making things worse and not sensationalising, not appropriating their stories as well, which is partly why she's constructed it in this in this kind of complicated way. But it begins with a kind of family road trip, which is a like a family road trip that she took herself um, in 2014. And there are photographs from that trip that are used in the book. Um, but it manages to an uh, amazing pivot into a, a more extraordinary story by imagining the accounts of children lost in the desert who are traveling uh, from Mexico to the US and also by imagining that the family kind of I don't want to spoil too much but the family kind of disintegrates for a for a while in the middle of the book it's a it's a really it's a really great book and a, another big book yeah well, not it's quite good. as big as Lucy Elman's but no it's substantial, <laughs> substantial. <laughs> and and quite challenging I've heard it's quite challenging but you you don't think it is you you well, I think I think it's it's a difficult book on a difficult subject, but there's nothing wrong with having some difficult books on the book along this. Mm. Um, then there are two Nigerians, and there's something really interesting going on in Nigerian fiction at the moment, and it may be as simple as a couple of the good agency starting up and Cassava, which is a publisher which is based half in Nigeria and half in England, which is, it's sort of, there's some real stimulation of Nigerian fiction going on. The, and the most famous of these is um, Chigozi Obioma, who sort of leapt out from nowhere in 2015 with The Fisherman and was you know, shortlisted for the book and was actually in contention, was quite widely thought to be the, the underrunner um, mm. for that year. Um, and th- his new novel is um, called An Orchestra of Minorities. Once again, it's dealing with it's sort of calling in que- into service the classics, which is a big thing. Last time he it was all to do with Yoruba myth. This time it's to do with the Greek myths. Um, and then the other get another book on the list, which is returning to old stories, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's something that seems to be happening all over the place at the moment, and it's also another one going back to Homer. I mean, we've seen so many stories going back to Homer. And, um, and the other is Yinkin Braithwaite, who we talked about when she was uh, longlisted for the Women's Prize. Yes, and now this is a first novel. So that usually you have a, a handful of first novels, and this is the only one actually. Yeah, so so we've we've already done a yink, and we, we're, <laughs> we're doing quite well with this list, aren't we? I mean, th- th- there's a moment when when you when the list comes in, and I, it's a terrifically exciting day, but it's also rather intimidating because you you know suddenly somebody has to sound authoritative, and you have not even heard of some of the writers. <laughs> but another man who's been on the podcast is is the final name on the list is is Kevin Barry. Uh, you know, I think it is quite interesting this domination by Irish writers that we've had now for. Ooh, 15 years probably yeah, I think of them as a young generation but of course they're not anymore yeah and his his book is that's Night Boat to Tangier which is a kind of two-hander between these 50-year-old drug dealers who are looking for the daughter of one of them who's who they haven't seen in three years it's kind of it looks like I mean I've not read it yet but it looks like kind of modern waiting for Godot as they they're in this Spanish port uh, waiting for the ferry to arrive and it's just it's just as usual it's just he's just a great voice he's just a pleasure to read uh, and he's kissed the blarney hasn't he I mean I mean that's a you know you could say that's a very cliche thing to say about Irish writing but it's very there's a garrulousness isn't there which is part of the joy he's a bantery sort of writer mm. and you know, a lovely flow to it yeah yeah I think that, you know, there's something infinitely relatable about just the notion of desire and the things that we are willing to do to have it. Lisa Tadeo. Today, she joins us to discuss her book, Three Women, which explores different notions of desire through intimate accounts of three women. 
desire and death are the only things not to be modulin and like but it's the only thing that really we think about or that matter it's like biological with these three women in this book that's it's non-fiction it's all it's all real isn't it Claire? yeah I, I i describe this as an eye to the keyhole book but that might suggest that she did it surreptitiously mm. and she hasn't she's she's spent a lot of time tracking down and then interviewing in great depth in that wonderful american um, long-form interview tradition um, three women one is uh, Lena who's an Indiana housewife whose husband no longer desires her and um, one is Sloane a high-achieving woman from Rhode Island whose husband likes to watch her having sex with other men and then there's Maggie who Lisa met just after the trial of Maggie's former school teacher ended and she had brought charges against him for a sexual relationship she said they had when she was 17 and she's been left reeling from the experience when he's found not guilty um, and the charge was soliciting and corrupting a minor, and he returned to his teaching job. Um, so, so these are they're sort of morally complicated, emotionally complicated stories. So, so basically, you could see it as a as a sort of portrait of the sex life of America. Well, these are women who are prepared to share the most intimate details of their lives. It's again, it's the it's the you know the touchstone of this particular tradition is this sort of trust that gets built up. I mean, we see it a lot in documentary filmmaking, but I think we don't see it quite so much now in writing, partly because it's been a little bit discredited. Um, there's something sort of slightly touchy about it. It has to be done incredibly well. And obviously, she has done it incredibly well. Indeed, I mean, it's that she's, she's not afraid to reveal things about herself. She, be, she begins the book as when she came to the studio. She began by reading a passage about her own mother. When my mother was a young woman, a man used to follow her to work every morning and masturbate in step behind her. My mother had only a fifth-grade education and a dowry of medium-grade linen dish towels, but she was beautiful. It's still the first way I think of to describe her. Her hair was the color of the chocolates you get in Tyrolean Alps, and she wore it in the same style, always. Short curls piled high. Her skin was not olive like her family's, but something all its own the light rose of inexpensive gold. Her eyes were sarcastic, flirtatious, brown. She worked as the main cashier at a fruit and vegetable stand in the center of Bologna. This was on the Via San Felice, a long thoroughfare in the fashion district. There were many shoe stores, goldsmiths, perfumeries, tobacconists, and clothing stores for women who did not work. My mother would pass these boutiques on the way to her job. She would look in the windows at the fine leather of the boots and the burnished necklaces. But before she came into this commercial zone, she would have a quiet walk from her apartment, down little carless streets and alleys, past the locksmith and the goat butcher, through lonely porticos filled with the high scent of urine and the dark scent of old water pooling in stone. It was through these streets that the man followed her. Where had he first seen her? I imagine it was at the fruit stand, this beautiful woman surrounded by a cornucopia of fresh produce, plump figs, hills of horse chestnuts, sunny peaches, bright white heads of fennel, green cauliflower, tomatoes on the vine and still dusty from the ground, pyramids of deep purple eggplant, small but glorious strawberries, glistening cherries, wine grapes, persimmons, plus a random selection of grains and breads, taralli, frizzelle, baguettes, some copper pots for sale, bars of cooking chocolate. He was in his 60s, large-nosed and balding, with a white pepper growth across his sunken cheeks. He wore a newsboy cap like all the other old men who walked the streets with their canes on their daily caminata. 
One day he must have followed her home because on a clear morning in May, my mother walked out the heavy door of her apartment from darkness into sudden light. In Italy, nearly every apartment house has dark hallways, the lights dimmed and timed to cut costs, the sun blocked by the thick, cool stone walls. And there was this old man she had never seen, waiting for her. He smiled, and she smiled back. Then she began her walk to work, carrying an inexpensive handbag and wearing a calf-length skirt. Her legs, even in her old age, were absurdly feminine. I can imagine being inside this man's head and seeing my mother's legs and following them. One inheritance of living under the male gaze for centuries is that heterosexual women often look at other women the way a man would. She could sense his presence behind her for many blocks, past the olive cellar and the purveyor of ports and sherries. But he didn't merely follow. At a Storton corner, when she turned, she caught a movement out of the side of her eye. The stone streets were naked at that hour in the toothache of dawn, and she turned to see he had his penis, long, thin, and erect, out of his pants, and that he was rapidly exercising it up and down with his eyes on her in such a steady manner that it seemed possible that what was happening below his waist was managed by an entirely different brain. She was frightened then, but years after the fact, the fear of that first morning was bleached into sardonic amusement. For the months that followed, he would appear outside her apartment several mornings a week, and eventually he began to accompany her from the stand back to her home as well. At the height of their relationship, he was coming twice a day behind her. Lisa, today, thank you very much for coming on the Guardian Books podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, part of me, I'm usually resistant when people bring me books or present me books and say, everyone's going to be talking about this book this year because I'm always a bit resistant. Like, I won't be, you know, I won't do what I'm told. I will <laughs> not talk about this book. And then I was given three women and I was told, everyone will be talking about this book. And I read it and I immediately started talking about it. And I just, I, it is one of the books of the year so far for me. So thank, thank you. you, first of all, for writing it. Um, but I'd love to sort of start where you left off really with that reading that your mother, this book sort of started with your mother, but then it becomes about more than just your mother. It becomes about these three women and also really by the end of it, all women. Can you um, sort of talk about how the book came to be and its very long genesis? Yes. Well, about a decade ago, <laughs> I was I was writing articles for New York Magazine and Esquire and Glamour and Elle, and I had written an article for New York Magazine called The Half-Hooker Economy, and it was supposed to be about the Tiger Woods and Rachel Yucatel scandal, but I kind of did a deeper dive into the bottle girls who were the purveyors of the you know, large bottles of champagne for the men who were paying $10,000 a table at nightclubs. And my editor, my current editor in the U.S., had read the story and um, took me out to lunch and said, I would like you to write a book, which was probably like both the most, the loveliest and the most haunting thing that I've <laughs> ever heard in a career. So, you know, he was like, you can write whatever you want kind of a thing. And But he had some ideas, and he sent me some creative nonfiction books like Joan Didion and Janet Malcolm and Tracy Kidder. And among the books he sent me was uh, Gay to Lisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife, mm. which is a sort of um, a temperature-taking of sexuality in the late 70s and early 80s. And I, I was struck by... A couple of things about the book, but the main ones being that it was incredibly immersive. He had spent a decade on it himself. I was really admiring of the immersiveness, but the book was told from such a male gaze 
that I wondered what it would be like if it were told from a female perspective because there's a lot of sex in it and mm. it was very interesting to read it but I also was found myself wondering what the emotions were behind the acts right and so then you so then, went on a hunt for three women <laughs> yes well I went on a hunt for I didn't you know I didn't know what I was hunting for mm. I I thought I was going to start out with a family whether it was you know a mother and a father or two moms or you know just with children and I was going to follow all of their their threads or I was going to find a town and just find you know a community of people and so I didn't know what I was going to do and I had started with a couple of families they didn't really pan out and the main reason and, and the hardest thing that I found throughout the entire researching of the book was that there are very few people out there who will be honest about desire. Mm. And at first I said I wasn't changing names because Gates Lisa told me I would be a hack if I did so. Right. But he had also <laughs> written his book pre-internet. So um, anyway, so, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, well, you know, I you could have talked to me. I would have told you. And the thing is, I talked to hundreds of people. Mm. It was not something that people wanted to talk about. So you met families that you, you were talking to people that after a while you got the sense they weren't telling you the whole truth? Yeah, I mean, it, yes, it, it was either that or there was a lack of depth and complexity. And I don't know whether that was because there was a reticence on their part to give it, or if there were some people just have, there is just the well only goes so deep, mm -hmm. I think. So, you know, th the main thing is that I, I wanted to find people with both compelling narratives and relatable ones. Mm -hmm. And so I drove across the country six times. I posted up these signs that were, you know, incredibly silly, like in retrospect. And they said, like, do you know, do you have a tale of, of desire? And, you know, it, some, like I was just looking for something. I would walk into bars and say, when was the last time you had sex? And that was not some to like random people. And that was not something <laughs> that I felt comfortable doing. But I didn't know what else to do. And how did that go down on the most part? It was, you know, there was a wide range of responses <laughs> from the profane to the horrified. Like, what is this woman doing? Mm. Uh, you know, and that was the thing. I didn't know what I was doing. People that I spoke to and early on, I didn't know. I was like, I don't know whether you're going to be a chapter or two pages or an entire book. I have no idea what the book's about. It's about desire, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So it was difficult. It was very, very hard. Yeah. And so then when it came to selecting these three women, you start with a, a prologue where you sort of explain the process that went behind mm -hmm. each of these stories. But you do make the point that you did try talking to men about desire. I did. You know, the first draft of the book was about 15 people, and there were men in there. Mm -hmm. And there were several other sections that were, they were longish, but they were nowhere near as long as the eventual, the three who, who stayed in. And the reason for that is just because they didn't, the other people didn't give me as much. And a lot of things, a lot of the way that I got people to talk to me was to say, just tell me everything that you want and can. And we'll go over it later. And if you say, you don't want this in anymore, I won't put it in. I'm not, like, you know, trying to catch you in something. I'm not. It's not like you're a politician and I'm, like, doing this undercover piece. So, and then what would happen is I would then go back and they would say, no, you can't put that in, please. Right. And then I was like, okay, now all I have you doing is, you know, being a barrister and then coming home and having porridge, you know. <laughs> um, and so that was the difficult part. So people have said, why did you select them? And I was like, as much as they selected me in the sense that they gave me so much mm. of themselves and that is the I guess that is the astounding thing about it that as you read it you start imagining yourself you know what would I be telling you and mm -hmm. I actually don't even think 
I would be reticent. I don't think I'd be able to put it into words. I don't think I'd be able to identify the the moments in my own life uh, to share with you. Um, And that's when I started realizing, I was actually amazed you found three whole women (laughs) that could tell their stories and had so much in their lives that that can sort of be um, sort of extrapolated onto a bigger picture. Yeah. Well, specifically with Lena in specific, and she's the suburban housewife in Indiana whose husband no longer wants to kiss her on the mouth, and then she embarks on this illicit affair with her high school sweetheart with whom she had never lost love for. And, you know, with her, she was remarkable because she was came from a very Catholic, traditional household and community and there was no divorce there was no infidelity none of that was allowed and she had the most wild sense of self-awareness that I've ever seen in a human being friends or otherwise and any of the subjects I looked at a lot of the things she told me made me think about myself in a different way because she was so self-aware and so powerfully in touch with what she wanted and at the same time also felt deserving of that, even though she had come from a place when she was told that she didn't deserve anything. Mm. And so there's Lena, so she's the housewife in Indiana, and mm-hmm. then we've also got Maggie. Can you share how you found out about Maggie? So I was in this coffee shop in Medora, North Dakota, which is a very cowboy part of America, like the cliche of America with horses and cows and cattle. And I was following up on a lead that a group of immigrant women were working as waitresses during the day at this coffee shop and then being trucked into the local oil fields at night to have sex with the men who worked there. And while I was having coffee and like the greasiest eggs I've ever had to (laughs) date, I mean, they were really good, but they were like under like the white was runny and it was really greasy oh, nightmare. um yeah it was kind of a nightmare but like, <laughs> I was just like hungry and um and I was reading the local paper and a trial had just ended wherein this young woman when she had been in high school she had had this alleged consensual but sexual relationship with her high school English teacher who had gone on to be named teacher of the year and she had brought charges against him and the trial had just ended and it had upended their community and you know, the text messages that they had allegedly sent to each other were not able to be recovered. But what was were these hours and hours of phone calls past 11 p.m., past midnight. And nobody was really talking about that. And it was shocking to me. So I I called her mother, and I think I drove to Fargo the next day. Mm -hmm. And so that was how I found Maggie. She was reticent, but also because the local media had been abusive and completely just they didn't listen to her and that was what I wanted to do I wanted to tell her story from her in her eyes Mm. and so you came to Maggie sort of post-trial then yes like right I think a couple of days after it ended and so how did then how did you get her to talk because obviously she'd just gone through this massively exposing she must have been feeling so vulnerable she was but we also talked for three years right so um (laughs) so at first it was yes at first it was very vulnerable and she was but then like you know we we spoke in person we spoke on the phone when I was researching the next woman Sloan in Rhode Island I had also just had my my child and I was nursing my child while like texting with Maggie at like all hours of the night and it was it was actually great to text with her because you know she was a younger woman and with texting they're just so much and it was also the way that she had predominantly allegedly communicated with the teacher so it was really interesting to be able to see the way that she wrote mm-hmm. and to you know to kind of then 
graft that back onto her memory of the text messages and have the two, I think, as intertwined as possible. I mean, she really did remember verbatim what they had said to each other because she was enthralled and had this obsession. And I think when we're obsessed, like we just, just every detail just burned in our minds. Mm. And you mentioned Sloane then. And Sloane's the one that's like the least present in the book, I think. She sort of feels like she's, her story is perhaps slightly less complex in terms of perhaps elements that need to be brought up. But then by the end of it, you do feel like she's possibly the most complex case in the I, I definitely think that there's a complex... I think that she is the most complex too. And I think that there's more that I did not plumb that I wanted to. Really? That, yeah. And, you know, it, there was a reticence to her, not not even out of fear of being exposed so much out of... But, like, there was a kind of this... I mean, she had been raised in a family that did not talk about their feelings. So even though she had risen from that, she still... The the boundaries of that were up. Sometimes she would just say things that were shocking, and I would say, oh, my God. And then other times we would talk for hours, and I feel like I wasn't getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it was difficult, but also really, I mean, I I was so, I was intrigued by all of them, but Sloane was, you know, the most, like I could, I saw myself more in the other two Mm -hmm. than in Sloane, and Lena the most. And Sloane was my sort of, I was just, yeah, fascinated endlessly. And so with Sloane, because she's, on the face of it, when you when we're introduced to her, she's this, you know, from very wealthy background, Rhode Island, you know, effortlessly charismatic woman, mm-hmm. doing the job she loves, has a husband that she loves. We're kind of thinking that she's the she's the portrait of female desire that's going to be the positive one. Mm-hmm. I think when we're when, when we're, we go into this, that she's going to be the example of this is how you you do this right. Mm-hmm. But then. Um, this element is introduced that her husband likes to watch her having sex with other men um, and likes to take part as well, sometimes. Um, and for me, I think Sloane was the one that I uh, I connected with the mm-hmm. most. Um, perhaps, I think, because of that very, I guess, first world luxury of having the time to think about your sex life. Mm-hmm. And she's so... Uh, proactive in trying to have the best sex that she mm-hmm. possibly can be having and I think that's something that we're seeing sort of more and more as sort of people have time and resources that they start putting that into their sex lives and start getting a little bit more adventurous yeah um and what is fascinating about Sloane I think is that she it's not necessarily a positive as it becomes very apparent by the end that perhaps her this sort of rather exciting um sex life that she has this idea about desire that she has has been shaped by the men in her life yes i i agree with that um but you know i think i think it's shaped by the experiences of the past and whether that's men or mothers which i found to be very to be a real theme i would say that she was in control in a way that nobody else that I'd met was quite. First of all, and I've said this, you know, before, I think that she's got one of the happiest marriages that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And granted, it's totally different from traditional marriages. But her husband tells her every day that she's his fantasy. And she's also in control of, you know, if, if she told her husband, I don't want to sleep with that man, he wouldn't say, 
well, you know, he wouldn't yes. get angry. He would, you know, she does it for him the same way that he does things for her that he may not want to do. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of marriages. Hers, the things she's doing just happens to be sexual. Mm-hmm. And I think people have a real aversion to people doing sexual things for other people, but it's not coerced. You know, it's just confusing mm-hmm. because it's confusing. A lot of things in relationships are confusing. And I think she was confused. So I was attracted to her happy marriage, her standing in the world, the way that she felt powerful and also submissive, Mm. which I think is really interesting. And then, you know, there's this confusion, and the confusion sort of washes away when they meet this, well, they knew him already, but when they bring this this third person in who uh, makes her feel like everything that she feels is okay, Mm -hmm. and also Fifty Shades of Grey, which also, like, legitimizes her lifestyle. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, with uh, Sloane, it's it's Fifty Shades. With mm-hmm. Maggie, it's Twilight. Yeah. Um, and with Lena, it's The Princess Bride. Yeah, that there is so, this yeah. presence of literature yeah, in all totally. of their lives. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned submission before, and that's the thing I'm fascinated by, because mm-hmm. I've never been able to really wrap my mind around mm-hmm. it, about how I feel about it, and how, mm-hmm. just about whether there is a way to engage in submission, or to be submissive. Yeah. in a way that doesn't inevitably degrade a woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't I I think it's a matter. I think what we're what we're doing a lot is like the the cancel culture that we're living in now is that you're almost not allowed to be submissive. You know, I feel like a decade ago or so I used to hear all my friends saying I just want to be thrown across a bed, <laughs> you know, by or it doesn't have to be a man. It just has to be someone with like a bigger sort of sense of power than you and now it's like the idea of saying that it's like you're saying you want to be raped Mm -hmm. against your will so you know and I don't think that wanting to be thrown across a bed or whatever is necessarily submission but it's definitely there's an act there's a sort of you want to be the person who's in a position of quiet and being the one waiting for something. But I also think that that changes with different partners and different people. And it changes depending on where you are in your life and how your desire is moving. So, but I think submissiveness in this culture right now is really hard to admit to because we will get reviled for it and shamed. And like, what kind of a woman are you if you want someone to do this to you? Mm. The idea that we would, you would always want power. There would be never be yes. a circumstance that you would willingly exactly. give it up. Whereas men, you know, men are often wanting to be submissive and that's okay. You know, like nobody says that you are weak because you want that. It's a, it's an element of desire that I think if whatever you want, if someone's willing to do it, with you judging it out in the open seems very strange to me Mm, yeah I mean there's an idea I think that emerges throughout all of the stories about power um, and you make a really interesting distinction between power and agency and it's particularly in regards to Maggie when she has this relationship with the English teacher and you make the point that women and girls do have power in part because men desire them but also girls do not have agency and Mm -hmm. that is the distinction to be made in Mm -hmm. cases like Maggie where people start going well she wanted it too and that is undeniable she definitely wanted it but whether she knew what to do with it is is the really uncomfortable question you know she wanted it but what she wanted is very unclear she wanted to be paid attention to by a man or authority figure that she was that she was respected. She wanted to be seen. I've always 
heard friends talk about, and I certainly can relate, the idea of being the older sister who's in the window getting undressed while, like, you know, the boyfriend of your younger sister, something like that, is walking by and watching the classic 80s movie. Mm. And, you know, I think that that would have been maybe enough, but it wouldn't be enough for a men, heterosexual men, from what I've seen, always take it to the next level. You know, at least the women I spoke to, I think there would have been a sort of point at which they don't want to go over and it would last more in their brains. Mm -hmm. Like one of my friends is always like never wants to go on a date. Like she just wants to talk to the guy for months because she's like the second we go on a date, it's going to suck, you know. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think women like the protracted chase and men are like just, you know, three days will be fine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's that idea of anticipation, I suppose. She desired desire and then when it happened, that's when it got messy. Yes, yeah. And we'll be back with more from Lisa Tadeo after the break when she and Sean discuss what shapes our experience of desire. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast, where Sean is speaking with Lisa Tadeo about her book, Three Women. We pick up the interview with Lisa explaining how the stories of three women can tell us about the ways desire is shaped by the world around them. It's interesting that when I finished the book, I felt a little bit abandoned in a funny way, in that I kind of felt like I hadn't got the answers that I wanted. And then I realized later, I was like, I, I'm really glad you didn't answer anything for me because I would have been really suspicious of anyone telling me I have all the answers to female desire and how that is shaped by outside forces. And I was actually really glad that you hadn't stepped into that role. But it does sort of feel, I guess, if there is any conclusion in this book, that there is this question about whether heterosexual women have actually achieved true sexual equality and whether you can ever have female desire that is entirely unshaped by the male gaze. I think that, you know, there's something infinitely relatable about just the notion of desire and the things that we are willing to do to have it. So I don't think that they're, you know, shaped by the men. I think that we're shaped by our pasts. And Lena was shaped by being raped by three men when she was a young woman. Sloane was shaped by, you know, a variety of things, a lot of which had to do with the way her mother was and the sort of, you know, unspoken emotions in their house. So I think we're all shaped by the things that happened in our past. But I don't think it, my book wasn't trying to say that women are not empowered. I wanted to tell the story of people. I didn't know it was going to be three people. I didn't know it was going to be three women. I didn't know it was going to be three heterosexual women. I would have preferred having, you know, the, the original draft I sent was 15 people. But ultimately, these people gave me the most. And what I wanted to do was tell stories and three stories of people who spoke very powerfully for themselves, not for all people. And so, you know, I wasn't trying, like you said, to make a conclusion, to draw one. I didn't. I don't really have one other than the fact that desire and death are the only things, not to be maudlin and like, but it's the only thing that really we think about or that matter. It's like biological. And I wanted to just explore that. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm sorry, it was a long-winded answer to the fact that I, I didn't draw a conclusion. I think that it's I think that all people can relate. I would hope they all can relate to one, two, or three of the women as I did. That was Lisa Tadeo. 
Desire and death are the only things, eh, Claire? Well, T.S. Eliot would say there are three things, birth, copulation and death. (laughs) But basically nobody remembers their birth and so they're singing the same tune. (laughs) Three Women is available now from Bloomsbury in the UK and Simon & Schuster's Avid Reader Press in the US. The Book of Shortlist is announced on September the 3rd, with the winner due on October the 14th. Next week, we'll be speaking with Rachel Deloach-Williams about the fake heiress, Anna Sorokin, who scammed wealthy New Yorkers out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. As always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, for me, Richard Lee, me, Claire Armistead, Sean Cake, and our producer, Brenna Daldorf, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>